2: Artemisia Gentileschi was the most celebrated female painter of the 17th century. She was known as La Pittoria, the paintress. She was as famous in her lifetime as Rubens or Van Dyck. Born in Rome in 1593, her first surviving work of Susanna and the Elders dates from 1610 when she was just 17 years old. Six years later, she was the first woman to join the celebrated Accademia del Disegno, the Florentine Academy of Art. But the events of her life were as savage as the events depicted in her paintings. And my guest today argues that they may well have created that energy and fury. Elizabeth Fremantle has previously published four critically acclaimed Tudor historical novels, among them The Girl in the Glass Tower and Queen's Gambit, soon to be the feature film Firebrand, and as E.C. Mantle, she's written two gripping historical thrillers, The Poison Bed and The Honey and The Sting. Her glorious new novel, Disobedient, tells a wonderfully imagined, though historically well-versed, version of Artemisia Gentileschi's life, and those pivotal events that may have changed everything. Elizabeth Fremantle, welcome to Not Just the Tudors.
3: Well, I'm very happy to be here and I'm very excited to talk about Artemisia.
2: Your star is very much in The Ascendant. We're all going to be watching a film based on your book, Queen's Gambit. The film is Firebrand with Jude Law and Alicia Vikander in the autumn. But today, as you say, we're going to be talking about Artemisia Gentileschi and your wonderful new novel, Disobedient. I was thinking about how to describe the experience of reading this novel. It is so beautifully written. It is so compelling. I have a small child who gets up early and yet I was staying up late reading this because I loved it so much. I found it utterly thrilling And I forgot I was supposed to be thinking about work and was just completely caught up in the story. So I don't have enough words to describe how beautiful it is. I just urge people listening to get a copy. Thank you for writing it. I'm really thrilled to hear
3: that response from you. It's always a nerve-wracking moment when a book goes out into the world. So that is music to my ears because that's what you want from fiction. You want to be able to be completely absorbed in it. And particularly, I think, historical fiction you want to be transported into that world. I think, in a sense, that's what differentiates it from non-fiction, where you're thinking about the impact of the story, whereas in fiction, you just want to be completely absorbed in it. So
2: I'm glad that you had that reaction. How did you go about recreating early 17th century Rome and giving us that kind of visceral experience of being there?
3: Well, it's quite tricky because... Firstly, I wrote this in lockdown, and so I couldn't travel and go to Rome and sort of be in some of the places she was, though modern Rome is very, very different, and sometimes it could be quite misleading to use a modern city as a kind of your way in, and their painting studio doesn't exist anymore. But some of the streets are still there. So I, what I used is there are some contemporary maps, and you can find them on the internet where you can zoom in on certain areas, which were just an unbelievably helpful resource for me. So I used maps. I always like maps because they give you a sense of place. But what they didn't give me was a sense of the topography of Rome, which is very hilly. But there were these amazing drone pictures of going through Rome, empty Rome in lockdown. So those were really useful because I really... They gave me the experience of actually being there with the streets quite empty. So it was almost like a living map of Rome. And that helps a little with the topography. And then you sort of piece things together. And there was a very helpful book about quotidian life. And I looked at the lives of the painters, the materials they used, how much they cost, how much they were selling their canvases for, because there's a lot of that available. And then obviously all the... Material on Artemisia. I didn't look at any of the creative material, but I looked at the biographical material and you piece it together, really. It's an active
2: imagination, though. Even things like the birds and what was growing, Mm -hmm. even those sort of details felt completely immersive and as if I was being taken back into that world. And all of that, I know from the point of view of a nonfiction writer, means work, it means research.
3: Yeah. Cause I think those details are really, really important when you're creating a fictional world. I'm completely obsessed with birds and bird song anyways. It always weaves its way into my books. And I wanted to use one of the opening scenes is a scene with a nightingale and the song of the nightingale is kind of a theme. Cause I wanted it to hark back to there's a really grim story from Ovid about a woman who's has her tongue cut out and she loses her voice and she's transformed into a nightingale and she sings in the woods every night. The theme of bird song was really, really important. So yes, a lot of time spent finding out about migratory patterns of birds and what months of the year birds are in that part of the world. But that's all such pleasurable research and the little details. Yes.
2: Your novel focuses on a couple of years or so of Artemisia Gentileschi's early life. And you create a sense of her life with her father, who is becoming, if not already an alcoholic, Orazio Gentileschi. Her mother, Prudencia di Montoni, had died when she was 12. What do we know of Artemisia's father and that relationship between the character you so vividly create here and the historical traces? Well, we know so little, oh, really. really. We
3: just know that she grew up in a house of boys and men. She had three brothers and there was no mother. So she was the oldest, age 12. The mother died. We don't know how the mother died, but we do know that Orazio chose rather than send her to live in another household, which would have been quite normal practice where she could be raised by Women. He, in my mind, this is where I bring the fiction to bear, but it makes sense to me that he couldn't resist but develop this burgeoning talent he'd spotted in her because her talent apparently emerged at a very young age and I think none of her brothers became painters or certainly didn't become painters that are remembered or were of any note. And so I imagined this man... Struggling. The life of a painter was difficult, hand to mouth. Bills had to be paid, canvases had to be bought, pigments were expensive, and commissions had to be sought. And yet he also had to raise three children. So the book really covers primarily the period of Artemisia's life. She's it's a year. She's 17. Her younger brother is, I think, three years younger, and then they go down from there. One of them's only six. And I tried to imagine how he managed his life and the loss of his wife and how difficult that must have been. But also, I had watched again the film of Amadeus, and I was looking at this portrayal of Salieri and his jealousy of Mozart and his horror, really, that Mozart, this performing monkey in his eyes, had been given all that talent by God. And so... I used that as a starting point where Orazio, the father, he loves his daughter and he's so impressed by her extraordinary talent, but he can't bear the idea that she's a woman, that she's been given this talent and she's a woman because he can't conceive of her as being what she wants to be and what she knows she can be, a painter and judged alongside her male peers. There were women earning their livings as painters. There were not lots. There were a handful of female portrait painters in the period. And from the 50 years before, Anguissola was well known and worked at the Spanish court and did many very beautiful paintings. But Artemisia wanted to be something more. She wanted to tackle the big subjects. She didn't want to be a portrait painter. But her father, it was an impossible thought for him. And so I wanted to balance that. Awful, shameful envy that he felt with the love and the pride he had for her. So that's where his character came from. But really, it is entirely from my imagination that was the man he was, because we don't really know. He was an inferior painter to her. And that must have been so difficult. And that's the only thing we can know, because we can see the paintings side by side, and hers have so much force and life. And his are beautiful and meticulous, but they're not brimming with passion and rage like hers are.
2: Yes, yes, that's right. He's so much more restrained and she has this intensity, doesn't she? I'm really struck by what you say there about what she wanted and I'm aware that I slip here between your character of Artemisia and the real, in inverted commas, Artemisia as far as we know her through the record. One point in your book, you say that she's reflecting every part of her, her body, her talent, her true self must remain hidden from the world. And that feels like a concern of yours about the lives of Renaissance women. And yet, if we move now into what we know of the real Artemisia, we know that she becomes this extraordinarily celebrated painter. And she does rise up to be recognized as a painter on the same level as Rubens or Van Dyck in her lifetime. And yet, That can only have come from this agency, this sense that you give her of drive and motivation. You don't self-realise in that way accidentally in that patriarchal society, do you? It's
3: force of character. And that was what led me to write the book about her because like her father, it was an unimaginable thing. And even for her, when she says that to herself, it's right at the beginning of the novel and she hasn't developed into that woman. She hasn't found her force of character yet. And it is a big event in her biography that I see as the event that pushes her to find that. And yes, what an extraordinary woman, because she really did achieve all that, only to fall into obscurity. I'm so happy that she's really seems to be having a moment now, and people are really responding. When I say I've written a book about her, they go, oh, I'm obsessed with her. And it makes me so happy to know that 400 years later, she's going to be a household name.
2: Can we think about her as an artist? And we have the amazing evidence of her pictures. What can we say about her technical skill? Your Artemisia paints fast. You know. Do we know that she worked fast or do we know she worked from life? What do we know about her working style? We don't really know anything. I mean, we can
3: look at her brushwork, we can inspect her pictures to the finest degree, but we don't really know more than what we can see. We do know that she painted from life because those pictures can only have been painted from life because they are so alive. And of course, that too would be taboo. This is a Catholic place in a time when nudity, and particularly for women, there was this kind of contradiction within the culture that the walls of Baroque Rome were covered in the images of the naked body. But somehow for a woman to sit in front of another woman, let alone a man, who is naked and paint them, it would compromise her virtue. And, you know, virtue was the only thing that really counted for a woman. So. That is a transgression in itself that is visible in her paintings. We can know that to a degree. We can know that about her character already when she was quite young because she painted Susanna and the Elders, painting this nude figure from life. We
2: see it. And you really bring to life the contrast between that painting of Susanna and the Elders from previous treatments of that story, that biblical or apocryphal story, And create this amazing sense that here we have a woman resisting sexual predation. Can you describe it for us? Yes. Well,
3: there are two paintings that kind of bookend the novel. And Susanna and the Elders is the one which kind of represents the, I don't want to say innocent Artemisia, but the prelapsarian Artemisia, who before she becomes the woman she's going to become, and she's chosen to paint this subject which is, for those who don't know, Susanna and the Elders, Susanna is a biblical figure. She's a married woman having her bath in the private garden. She's naked. And two of the village or town elders see her there and they are depicted as ogling her in a very overwhelming and sinister way. And then they threaten if she doesn't lie with them to use the biblical term, and they will tell the community that she has lain with them and she'll be deemed a whore, etc. It's always about a woman's virtue you know, through history. These stories are always about that. They're always sort of indulging in the nudity of the central figure and they're really there for the titillation of men, more than the biblical lesson of the painting there's a sort of luxuriating in that, the fleshiness of the women. Whereas this, the woman is absolutely exquisitely depicted. She's so real, but you see her fear. As she notices these men, she's turning back to look at them, trying to put a barrier with her hands between her naked body and them. And she's got this tiny little piece of fabric she's trying to cover herself with. And you almost see that motion of Surprise and fear, and covering herself all at once. This is not like those old, kind of fleshy, rather sexual Susannas. This is something different. And in some ways, I hesitate to use the term feminist, but there is something of a proto feminist in the way Artemisia saw her female subject.
2: And it's so interesting because you've painted this sense of a society in 17th century Rome, obsessed with virtue and a woman being chased. And yet, as you've just described it there, previous versions of this Susanna have put the spectator in the position of the elders. They are also lavishly looking at the woman and Artemisia says, no, it's not our fault, it's your fault. It's the way you're looking at us that makes us scared. Yes, she is transferring
3: the male gaze. And that's something so revolutionary. And even the later picture, which is the depiction of Judith slaying Holofernes, that I'm aware of, the only artist to previously tackle that subject, the actual moment of slaying rather than the beheaded head discreetly in a basket as they're scurrying away, the women are scurrying away back to their village, was Caravaggio's. And Caravaggio's Judas saying Holofernes is an extraordinary painting, but, and I do make much of this in the novel, that really the first thing that grabs the eye is not that act of decapitation, the subject of the picture. The eye is drawn to this bright white chemise that the very young Judith is wearing. She's young and the chemise is stretched over her breasts and you can see her erect nipples. She's looking in sort of bemused horror. What have I just done as she wields this knife and there's this sort of rather grim ejaculation of tomato-coloured blood heading her way? It's horribly erotic. And she's so young, whereas Artemisia... Her women are fully clothed, and there are two. the maidservant who, in the Bible, was waiting outside. She puts her there. she puts these two really strong women with their big muscular arms, one holding them down, and Judith is hacking his head off there's a spurt of blood that goes out like a Catherine wheel it's one of the most brutal images. And for a woman to have painted this is unprecedented in its time. And interestingly, she painted two pictures of this almost identical. The women are slightly differently dressed and there are certain different things when you look at them. But I had it pointed out to me by an art historian that in the second one, he felt it was the first instance of paint being flicked onto the canvas in a really abstract way and you can see it it's there this paint has not been meticulously painted it's been thrown at the canvas so i look at that a little bit in the novel too as another depiction of her rage at the events of her life which has been shaped by men it's an extraordinary painting it's in the uffizi And I recommend anyone, if they can, to go and see it.
1: I'm Tristan Hughes, host of the Ancients from History Hit, where twice a week, every week, we delve into our ancient past. I'm joined by leading experts, academics and authors who share incredible stories from our distant history and shine a light on some of antiquity's great questions. Was the Oracle of Delphi really able to see into the future? What can be discovered from lost civilizations? And was King Arthur actually real? You can expect all of this and more from the ancients on History Hit wherever you get your podcasts.
2: book, you cite her in her own words, a couple of them for the listeners, I'll show you what a woman can do and as long as I live, I will have control over my being. So I thought you might tell us a little bit about the documentary evidence of this authentic voice of hers and also the relationship that you see between her work and that autonomous energy that we read in her letters. Yes, I think you only have to look at the
3: way she writes and it's just, there's a kind of striking handwriting, forward propulsion, but all those details help create the sense of a person. I mean, and as a historian, you will know what that feels like when you see a document that shows you something of the character before you've even read it. It's a really remarkable thing. And there are lots of letters. Which is just wonderful. And there are letters where she's demanding proper payment and she's really asserting herself. She's arguing for better payment for women. And she was a woman unlike other women in her time. In a sense, she was a libertine, I see it. Many, many letters between her and her lover, who was also friendly with her husband. And the husband and Pier Antonio Stiatesi, who she married, Finally, he's in correspondence with her lover, Maringi, and to me, I see her as a kind of early Bloomsbury group style setup. Those letters, you know, the firmness and the negotiations she's making about her commissions and how she's going to be paid. She wants more money if she's going to be drawing extra figures in them. And she's no pushover. I love that. And also, of course, we've got the court transcript. Fortunately, Mary Garrard has a translation in her wonderful book that is basically a pretty full biography, pretty much what we know about Artemisia, though the love letters showed up later. She has all the court transcripts there in English, thank heavens, because my Latin is certainly not getting <laughs> full. And we get not only the testimonies of all the other witnesses, But we get Artemisia's testimony and her voice. And of course, the words that she said that really echo down is, it's true, it's true, it's true, that she repeats it and really asserts it. So those documents were all
2: an incredible help to me. I want to come back to the court transcripts in a second. But you've mentioned just there Pierre Antonio, who becomes in your novel... I think it's fair to say a largely invented character of Piero, and I love the way that you've imagined into the gaps in the historical record here. This is what you novelists get to do and makes us so jealous. And it's just an amazing sense of what might have been and what might explain the things that we do know. Yes. I mean,
3: he's called Piero Antonio. I call him Piero. It's like a little nickname. You know, he's like a kind of Shakespearean character from Midsummer Night's Dream or something. There's something slightly ephemeral about Piero. I've characterized him as homosexual and he obviously has to hide that. And they have this extraordinary friendship, he and Artemisia. He recognizes that for Artemisia, her work and her talent is much, much more precious than anything else about her. It's more precious than her virtue. It's more precious than anything. And he's the only one that really recognizes that. And so But through his understanding of the fact that she puts her art before anything, but he knows that she will have to marry eventually. And, of course, he is blighted by this idea that she'll have to marry, she'll be with a husband who won't want her to be a painter or not the kind of painter she wants to be. And so they have this extraordinary bond that she knows his secret and he knows her secret, which is that, She's not interested in marriage. She's not really interested in men. She's only interested in her art. And so, in some ways, they're both freaks according to the society they live in. So their friendship is a really key part of the book. A lot of the novel, he's not there. He's absent, but his thread runs through it.
2: He certainly does. And it's a reminder, though we don't know if certain whether he was homosexual or not, we certainly know that this was a society that in its patriarchal nature was as negative for homosexual men as it was for women in the sort of dominant experience of heterosexual patriarchy. So coming to that, you mentioned the court transcripts and they are incredibly detailed and vivid accounts of something that happened to her. And we're going to tread around this carefully because I want people to be able to experience your novel with all of the compelling intensity that I did when I didn't know exactly what was going to happen. But at the same time, I think it's really important that we talk about this element of both your novel and Artemisia's real life, and here you are mirroring that. So perhaps we can talk about that relationship between what you write and what happened.
3: Yes. Well, Artemisia is a survivor. She's a survivor of sexual assault or rape. and She has to prove her testimony in court where she says she was raped by a man who denies that she was. And she has to prove her testimony under torture as well, which is just so horrific. But I feel like those aspects of her biography, the way I have seen it, I know that many art historians and particularly feminist art historians and particularly art historians of Artemisia in particular, they don't want to see her work as shaped by her biography and therefore shaped by the acts of men. But I also am a survivor of that kind of event. And I know that in some ways, everything you produce is shaped by that kind of event. Those events are formative. And in a sense, what I see in Artemisia is someone who's taken that and used the force of her rage to become the woman she became, to find her success and to have that steel and determination that she would have had to overcome all the obstacles of the patriarchy in becoming a female painter, painting taboo subjects, doing it her way and not caring about the judgments of others. That event made that woman. So I understand that art historians want people to look at her work on the wall next to other depictions of similar scenes and judge it simply as a brilliant, extraordinary work of art without all the baggage that comes with it. But I'm a novelist. I love all that baggage. And that's what to me makes a fictional depiction. But I too want people to see her work on the walls of galleries and judge it in its own terms. I want that for her as well and for other female artists.
2: Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's obviously very well meant. It has a feminist intent to say, let's not view her artistic accomplishments as being defined by trauma. And yet, what you're suggesting in this novel and in this conversation is that we also do her a disservice if we deny her agency in responding to what happened to her. So it's not saying that the work is defined by men because it was a man who raped her. It's saying, no, it's defined by her and the fact that she got back up and then she did all of these things.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. That she used what might have sent another woman into a nunnery or to suicide or God knows what. She used it to really Ignite the fire underneath her to shape herself. It's as if she gave birth to this new version of herself through that event. And that's very much how I see it. It's as if she puts herself in control as a result of that. And it's interesting material for me as a fiction writer.
2: You portray a disjuncture between how her assault is seen that she sees it as violence against her and her father sees it as a stain on the family honor. And the sources must be tricky on this one, because anything she would have said, or anything she did say, would have been shaped by trying to create a retelling that was most likely to get a conviction. Do you have a sense of what we can know about how Artemisia might have thought about this?
3: Only one that comes from my imagination, really. I mean, you can read and read and analyse the testimony, and you can look at, The testimony of the others, I think some of those which were really disproved in court, men saying, yes, they carried letters between her and all her multitude of lovers when she couldn't read or write. So these were disproved just in their own terms. So we can differentiate between the false narratives and the true narratives. And I choose to believe that her narrative is completely true. And I take that from looking at that picture, that Judith, because there it is. There is her revenge for something that certainly happened. And also, her account is so specific. The tiny details of holding onto the bedpost and little details of this little knife she throws at him, and it's all there in just smacks of authenticity. You know, I feel like you can see this truth and these Cries she makes in court. It's true. It's true. This is someone who really emphatically wants to be believed. And also, you have to put that up against all these other women who maintain that they have not been believed. They have had similar experiences. No one's believed them through history. And of course, a lot more women were coming forward during the Me Too movement and talking about their experiences, and saying they weren't believed. So that was the decision I made about the testimonies, that hers was certainly true. And it seems to hold water for me that she told the story as she knew it and as it happened. But as you say, the disparity between the violation of her body and the violation of the family honour, and that being a kind of male-female dichotomy, if you will, for her it's personal. Her father can't even see that, really. He can't see beyond the cultural conditioning that means it's a slight on the Gentileschi name and something that must be redressed. And he must give her her virtue back by fighting this in court. She's had her virtue stolen. And for her, it's a very, very different thing. But she must go through that because otherwise she will never get her freedom.
2: I spent some time working on court records from the south of France and in those, I was looking at women's testimonies and there were 90 cases of women who had been raped or assaulted. One is immediately coming to mind, which is a woman called Marguerite Bruesse, who was from sixteen hundreds to 10 years before this happens to Artemisia. She was a servant girl and she was raped by her employer. And Exactly what convinced the consistory who was questioning her that her account was true was what has convinced you that Artemisia's is true. And it's the details that she says, I was there digging out the dung in the garden, and then you took me into the stable and you threw me onto the rye. And it's the specific details about what happened. So, in this, she does speak for so many women at this time in history, and as you say, since. Could you lightly sketch out for us? a sense of what happened to Artemisia after this point. Well, she leaves Rome and she leaves her father
3: and her family. And I give him his own voice because I want him to not just be a kind of monstrous father figure. He's complicated and suffering from this sort of terrible, confusing jealousy and pride. And he's a man of his time, but she needs to get away from him because she needs to get away to develop her work. And of course, she then goes on. Her late biography is extraordinary. She goes on to be commissioned by the Medicis. In fact, to become a bit of a darling of the Medici family and commissioned by some of the great families. And she gets to see what I set out as her great ambition, which is to have her paintings hanging alongside the male greats. And that is what happens to her. She travels. She conducts her own life. We know this from the letters. She negotiates all the terms of her commissions. She traveled to England and she painted for Charles I, Queen Henrietta Maria. There's a painting still in the Royal Collection, which is the most wonderful self portrait as the muse of painting. And it's this strangely angled picture. And there's a wonderful detail in it. She's got this chain around her neck and it's got a little skull on it. So it's a kind of vanitas. And she lived quite a long life. She lived into her 60s and she traveled to different Italian cities. She spent a lot of her late life in Naples. She spent a lot of time in Naples and that was where she died. But she and her father were reconciled. They were both in England together at the same time. And he was still painting inferior pictures. <laughs> and actually, there was an extraordinary exhibition of her work in the National Gallery, the first exhibition of one of the big exhibitions, solo exhibition of a woman's work at the National Gallery. First ever. It was in 2020. The mind boggles, right? Wow. Yeah, 2020. And unfortunately, that was the year of lockdown. So it was postponed. And so when it opened, 12 people at once could go in and everything. So that was kind of amazing because you did get to see the pictures without having to Look over heads and hustle about. But so few people were able to see it, which was just such a tragedy, really. So I hope, hope, hope another one will come, and I'm sure it will. But to see all that work together, and there were one or two pictures of her father's there with a lot of her work, and the late pictures of her father's and hers from that period in England. And yes, there's one great, huge canvas painted by Orazio, which is. It just isn't very good. So that takes up all the wall and then there's this quite small self-portrait of hers and you're just magnetized. It's extraordinary. And yeah, and that's her. That's her force, which, you know, we feel
2: through the centuries. One more question about the book in particular, which is that, as you've described it, she does live this extraordinary life. But in the book, her life is paralleled with another female life, which is Zita's. And I wondered if in some way Zita is the foil, that is the more normal, unelevated 17th century female existence. Is that fair?
3: Yeah, absolutely. That's what I set out to do. And Zita, I called her Zita, but she's actually called Tutsia. She was a real figure and she lived in the household. And She was a sort of companion for Artemisia, someone to keep an eye on her. She was an older woman, she had children of her own. We don't really know where her husband was, but she was married and I've said her husband was away traveling on trading trips. And so Tutsia, or Zita, was an artist model and part of the payment of rent was that she would sit for them. And I show them as such different women. Zita is quite religious, but she's also, there are contradictions there. What more can I say? She's very human. But she can't understand why Artemisia doesn't care about her appearance and that she goes around with filthy fingernails covered in paint and really she's not really interested in getting married and that she doesn't fancy the really handsome man that arrives in the studio. Zita just doesn't understand what she is. She's this sort of strange creature. And I wanted to show the difference between the two women because for a modern reader, we kind of want to see how Artemisia is different and Zeta is a good way of showing that i feel very tenderly towards zeta because she's so full of her own little flaws but she's very sweet you know she can be the agent of destruction in some ways but it's always unwishing she never means any harm on anyone but she's not super clever i don't want to be mean to her but <laughs> i'm very fond of her as a character but yes they are foils for one another in
2: some senses yeah why do you think Artemisia did fall into obscurity for so long. Well,
3: I think with the Enlightenment, Baroque art really became unfashionable. And then, of course, when people were reconsidering it, we look at the sort of late Victorian and the early 20th century, nobody wanted to look at women's art. There was an assumption by then that nothing women produced was of the standard of anything a man
2: produced, so she was ignored. Which is a tragedy, really. I blame the Victorians. <laughs> we can blame them for all sorts of things. Well, your novel, Disobedient, which is out now, should be bringing Artemisia to life for a new generation. And once again, I urge people listening, do pick up a copy. It would just be a treat to yourself. Just go and get one now. Thank you so much, Liz Fremantle. Thank you so much for joining me to talk about this novel.
3: Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so it's a great pleasure to have been invited on. And yes, thank you.
2: And thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, my researcher, Esther Arnott, and Joseph Knight, who edited this episode. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find, not just the tutors.
1: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over one million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.
2: History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age –